Henry Crawford was at Mansfield Park again the next morning and at an earlier hour than common visiting warrants. The two ladies were together in the breakfast room. I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week we're looking at chapters 31 to 34 of Mansfield Park. And I do apologise for the long break since the last episode. As I said in the placeholder, we actually recorded this one ages ago, but I haven't been able to edit it because I've been busy working on presentations for the Jane Austen Society of Australia conference and also for virtual JaneCon. If you're interested, I'll put links to these in the show notes. Plus, I've also had some non-Jane Austen things, like judging in the Educational Publishing Awards Australia and preparing for Commonwealth Veteran Fencing Championships. But that's all done now, except for the fencing, so I'm finally back to the podcast. Let's start with your 100-word summary. Okay. So, these were only four chapters this time, but it still had quite a lot to say in the 100-word summary. Yes, and I know I left out some bits that should have been there, but still. So, Henry tells Fanny that his uncle has used influence to have William made a lieutenant, which delights Fanny. What doesn't delight her is that Henry then proposes marriage. She refuses. But the next day, Henry comes to Mansfield to gain Sir Thomas's consent. Sir Thomas comes up to tell Fanny and is staggered to learn of her refusal. He pressures her to accept, but she won't change her mind. Edmund returns home and Henry comes to dinner. When Henry reads aloud from Shakespeare, Fanny is caught up in his reading, but is distressed when he engages her in conversation. Right, well you said it a lot more elegantly than I did. (laughs) And you got a lot more in than I've managed to. Henry Crawford gives Fanny the news that William has been promoted and reveals his part in it. He then proposes to Fanny. She believes he is simply flirting with her, feels insulted and refuses to listen. Mary sends Fanny a congratulatory note. Henry approaches Sir Thomas, who is displeased when he discovers Fanny has rejected Henry. He insists she must meet Henry again. Henry tells Sir Thomas he wishes to continue his wooing and that it need not be kept secret. Edmund returns. Henry puts on a display of his talents, reading Shakespeare and discussing serious subjects with Edmund. Okay. I think we both left out about the fire in the East Room, didn't we? Yes, yeah. Well, that can come up later. Perhaps before we get on to anything else, we should start by mentioning that right in the middle of what we're talking about, between chapter 31 and 32, volume 2 ends and volume 3 begins. The end of volume 1 was a real cliffhanger with Julia coming into the room and saying Sir Thomas is home. This one finishes on a more emotional turmoil moment. So it's not a cliffhanger, but it is a very what is going to happen next yes. moment. Yes. Did she plan these or would the end of any one of these chapters had the same sort of emotional turmoil, what will happen next? You know, I think you're right there that it's not really a cliffhanger no. at all. And if you think about it, any of those chapters, mm. you'd still want to know what's going to happen. Yes. So, of course, the chapter starts with the wonderful news of William being made lieutenant, which we kind of went through a couple of episodes ago when Michael was talking about what a weight of obligation this puts Fanny under towards Henry. Yes. Well, William and his family and Fanny. When she's thinking, I mustn't marry him, I'm completely justified. It keeps coming back. He did this for William. 
The proposal itself, what struck me is that her main initial reaction is, he can't be serious, I don't believe this. Well, completely. And she feels she knows exactly why. She's heard him saying the same to Mariah. Yeah. As far as she's concerned, that's his technique to sort of half-propose marriage. The interesting thing is she feels genuinely insulted. Yes, it actually says... She considered it all as nonsense, as mere trifling and gallantry, which meant only to deceive for the hour. She could not but feel that it was treating her improperly and unworthily, and in such a way as she had not deserved. At this point, she just has no sense that he's serious. She just thinks he's messing with her. But she can't respond the way maybe she'd like to because of this sense of obligation. And then she gets this sort of total confusion of getting this note from Mary. Yeah. Are they both in this, she's thinking? Yeah. Have they got a conspiracy? And so she writes to Mary, I know it means nothing. Yeah. But she seems to think that her note to Mary is a proper denial. Yes. But then, look, here's another thing, because I like to be pro-Mary. It's so condescending, but at the same time, it's a totally warm response. There's not a mention of her smart views of marriage, that marriage is something where you shouldn't get the financial advantage. Not a whisper of it. Yeah, when she wrote that, there was no doubt in her mind that Fanny would say yes. So it was a lovely, welcoming, friendly letter, based on the complete misapprehension. (laughs) Again, this picture they've all got of this little modest Fanny who basically doesn't expect anything from anybody. Yeah. And that's the view they've got of her. Mm. And I suppose one of the things I want to say about that response to Fanny is that Fanny has spent all this time even hiding her own feelings. You know, way back where she worries that if she does something from a certain motive, people might see it. Yep. So she won't go and look for the pony in case they think she wants to find the pony. Yes. <laughs> and she, she won't criticise Mary anymore because Edmund's not joining in. Mm. And he might think she's critical. And she's had this way of hiding her feelings, hiding her feelings. Mm. And it's so difficult for her to persuade anyone because they have this view of creep mouse Fanny. Yeah. Not of this Fanny with all these moral ideas roaming yeah. around in her head. Yeah. And a Fanny who does actually have things she wants to do and things she doesn't want to do. Because all they've ever seen is the Fanny who you ask her to do something and she does it. Yes. And the Fanny who doesn't show feelings, who always looks obliging. Yes. A Fanny who who never seems to put herself forward. Yeah. And they don't realise that that's not natural to her. Yeah. That what this not putting herself forward, all this, it's more or less Fanny's principle. It's what she's decided that she is not to expect much of people. She doesn't like it. It's very much been imposed upon her. Well, no, I think she's accepted it as a moral duty, though. Yeah. But that, of course, leads into the amazing scene of Sir Thomas in Fanny's room. I think our reaction to this can be really strongly influenced by what we think of Sir Thomas at this point. Yes. Because it is, of course, bookended with the fire. He walks in, he sees she doesn't have a fire, he says she will have a fire. Then all this big emotional stuff happens, and yet at the end of it, when she's gone away and she's come back into her room... There's the fire. He's remembered that he said she must have a fire and he's made it so. Or, alternatively, you can say that he's preparing 
for when she finally accepts Henry Crawford for her not to be blaming the family too much. Well, I suppose there's that. Which isn't something I think. But I think when you look through the discussion they have about the proposal, mm. Sir Thomas goes up, as with Mary, as with Henry, there's no question in his mind that yes. she will say yes, because from every point of view, it's an amazing opportunity for her. So then you get Sir Thomas's surprise. and She says, I cannot like him, sir, well enough to marry him. And we have, this is very strange, said Sir Thomas, in a voice of calm displeasure. So what then happens is his long speech to her in which he talks about how she's disappointed every expectation he had, how he had thought her free of willfulness of temper, self-conceit and independence of spirit, which is offensive and disgusting. Which, of course, to a modern reader, to say that it's offensive and disgusting for a woman to have independence of spirit is just horrible. And does fit in with what we were saying earlier about Sir Thomas liking biddable women. But, of course, we've got the other thing that, with Fanny particularly... He expects her to be grateful. Yeah. She's got all this gratitude. She should be doing the right thing yeah. by them. He goes on to say she's decided without consideration for others or even asking advice. So that's moving much more into the she has an obligation to her family to marry well. One thing I thought was interesting was he goes on to talk about how she Fanny is not thinking about how everyone will benefit from this. She is only thinking about her own happiness. And I suddenly thought, this is like an inverse of Lady Catherine talking to Elizabeth, where Lady Catherine is saying, you haven't thought about what this will do to Darcy. And then yes. Elizabeth says, I will make a decision that I think will be benefit my own happiness. Yes. Well, when we were looking at Pride and Prejudice, I mean, one of the things I think I was noticing was the way the word happy keeps coming up, Yeah. that the idea of marriage was to make them happy. Mm. But, I mean, the point is, at the time Sir Thomas is there, Fanny doesn't realise she's rejected a proper proposal yeah. of marriage. Mm. So it's coming as a terrible blow to her. Yeah. Because she thinks up till now that Henry Crawford's been, well, in He's effect, been trying to seduce her. Yes. Yeah. But then after that, the thing Sir Thomas says, from his point of view, it is a good match because he, in his view... Henry has sense, character, temper, manners, fortune. He's very attached to her. He's done everything properly. And Sir Thomas has this this long speech to her, which is mostly but not entirely given his views of Henry Crawford and of why you get married. Most of what he's saying is not actually unreasonable. He does use some strong words. Yes. At times, quite horrible. But even that, I picture that as being delivered... Still with Sir Thomas's dignity, he's not shouting at her. He's not being the horrible tyrant. He's not saying, you will marry Henry Crawford. No, but what or, he... or I'll lock you up in your room with nothing but bread yeah. and water until you give yeah. in. Which is the sort of thing that is supposed to have happened to Colonel Brandon's first love. Yes, she was treated unkindly until she gave in. But Fanny is treated kindly, but the thing is... Fanny being Fanny, it's not surprising she she ends up in tears because she is so determined to please and he knows that. And so the impact of what he's saying on her is just devastating. And everything after that, you know, him sending her to the shrubbery, him remembering the fire, it's kind and it's nice, but it's also quite emotionally manipulative, I think. Oh, yes. He is... 
He well, is see, the... that's the way you can interpret the fire. Him, you know, still ordering the fire yeah. could be part of that. Well, part of building up her sense of obligation. So the, he's not being a tyrant, but he is still very, 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 very keen for her to accept Henry's proposal. But he's got the Charlotte Lucas view of marriage. Yeah. Being offered a marriage is like being offered a job. Yeah. You don't say, is this the job of my heart? Yeah. You say, is this the best job I'm likely to get? Yes. Yeah. They've got clashing views of marriage. She shares the Elizabeth Bennet view of marriage, which we saw in Pride and Prejudice, sees sexual relations, that's marriage, only moral if the couple are in love. Hmm. And that's what Fanny thinks. And Jane Austen is totally behind Fanny Yeah, in that. Mm. And then you've got that really sad bit where Sir Thomas says to her, have you any worries about his temper? And she longs to say, no, but his principles I have. Yeah. Then after the conversation with Sir Thomas and the sort of second conversation with Henry, Fanny does come to understand that, yes, it's not a terrible joke at her expense. It is real. And she moves a bit further than that. She does start to realise that he has some feelings. Yeah. So she has to change her manner to him. Yeah. And, of course, once she changes her manner to him, Henry just sort of thinks, hooray, hooray, you know. Yeah. I'm on my way. Yeah. There's also the part, that phrase where he likes the thought of having a chance of of pursuing Um, her. Yes. A little difficulty to be overcome was no evil to Henry Crawford. He rather derived spirits from it. He had been apt to gain hearts too easily. His situation was new and animating. But she then accepts it, but she still doesn't believe, rightly as it turns out, that he will in fact be constant. But she also, she does feel bad that he cares for her and she's saying no. It's again, she's very aware of what people feel. She was more aware than anyone else in the whole house of what Julia was feeling when Henry turned his attention to Mariah. Yeah. And so she has to know what he's feeling. Mm. And, of course, being Fanny, she'd have to feel guilty. Yeah. But it also says she would not, could not believe that Mr Crawford's affection for her could distress him long. His mind was not of that sort. London would soon bring its cure. In London, he would soon learn to wonder at his infatuation and be thankful for the right reason in her which saved him from its evil consequences. Yes, the real trouble is that she didn't take that opportunity to say to Sir Thomas that she disapproved of his principles. He might have then said, this is ridiculous, he's a sort of very principled young man, but... But of course, and that's even when Henry comes to see her the second time, he still, he just doesn't see how completely she dislikes and disapproves of him. And that's because, you know, she is being so gentle because now that she's accepted that he's for real, she's feeling terribly guilty about turning him down. And she now realises that she's got to be polite about this. She can't be indignant and say, how dare you treat me the way you treated Mariah. Yeah. Yeah, and it says that she can't respond as firmly as she might have in Southerton or during the play when all she had in front of her was his bad behaviour. Yes. She must have a sensation of being honoured. And whether thinking of herself or her brother, she must have a strong feeling of gratitude. And then you've got, apart from the brother's gratitude, this other thing of, I'm letting down my family, but her principles would have said, there's no way you could marry for your family. Yeah. Well, what she says at one point... How unpardonable, how hopeless and how wicked it was to marry without affection. 
Well, which is where back to the importance of love in marriage that was there running through Pride and Prejudice. Mm. But in the last chapter we've got here, which is Edmund has returned home. And Edmund, of course, buys into this thing that Fanny has set up with Sir Thomas, but it fits with Edmund's view of her that the reason she said no is purely and simply because it's so sudden. She hasn't had time to fall in love with Henry because it would have been presumptuous of her to allow herself to fall in love with Henry. Well, it's this general feeling they all have of this modesty of Fanny, which is seen as a sort of a simple shrinking heroine sort of thing. Not this, well, leaving aside that she's in love with Edmund. This strong principle and these well-thought-out views she's got on what marriage means is at least as clear about it as Elizabeth Bennet Mm. was. It's this strong view of marriage that Jane Austen appropriates, you know, which you feel is a bit tough. Yeah. But it, it may well have been, when you think of her, why she didn't marry Big Wither. But just the amazing thing here, and it comes out even more in the next set of chapters we're going to look at, is Fanny isn't being treated badly, but there is so much emotional pressure being put on her and she just stands up against it, which is just amazing. Yes. No, No other Jane Austen heroine, I think, has to put up with that much pressure. So then, of course, in chapter 34, that's the one where Henry comes to dinner and the reading of Shakespeare and just this sense that this is the best side of Henry. It's this good side of Henry, but this time through, I haven't felt as bad about it previously, is there he is putting all his good side on display. Look, I can do this wonderful reading of Shakespeare. Yeah. Look, I can talk about the liturgy. Yeah, it, it is all performance, <laughs> but... yes. Even I could give a sermon. And then the way he even turns round, I could give a sermon. But of course, I'm a proud person. I would be wanting to be a show-off as a sermon. Yeah. And that made me think there are a lot of conversations scattered throughout this book about what it means to be a clergyman. Yes. About the duties of a clergyman, about what makes a good clergyman, about the career prospects of a clergyman. You know, she said probably partly jokingly that it's a book about ordination but I do think a very very strong thread running through it is the clergy what it is to be a clergyman so maybe in that sense it is about ordination it's about these are things you you should think about before becoming ordained as a clergyman well that's absolutely true that the book is about it but that question in the letter sounds to me like I want to know about how they get in touch with the bishop yeah (laughs) And I guess then after that, when Fanny's shaken her head and is forced to say that perhaps, sir, I thought it was a pity you did not always know yourself as well as you seem to do at that moment. And I think this is the conversation where Henry finally gets an inkling of why it is that Fanny said no. It's not because she's modest. It's not because she's shy. It's not because she was taken by surprise. There is actually... Something about him that she doesn't like. That she doesn't like, that she doesn't approve of. He did say that earlier, that her looks say, I do not approve of you. But now he's finally getting a handle on, yes, that is the case. And now that she's said it, now he can do something about it. Now he can prove to her that he is not what she thinks. That my conduct shall speak for me. Absence, distance, time shall speak for me. They shall prove that as far as you can be deserved by anybody, I do deserve you. So it's actually quite a nice speech he gives there. Yes, if you could trust it. I'm sure he is genuine when he says it. Yes. But as she says to him, he doesn't know himself. Yes. 
And she is fairly sure, she knows him. Yeah. That he's not going to be one to have suddenly fallen in love for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, and that's more or less where these chapters finish. So, did you have a favourite sentence? Well, let's hear your favourite sentence okay. first. So, the one I thought I'd have this time is another Mrs Norris line. It's it's when Baddeley comes in and <laughs> says Sir Thomas wants to see Fanny. And Mrs Norris says... You mean me, Baddeley, I am sure. Sir Thomas wants me, not Miss Price. Now, I know she considers herself more important to the running of the house than Fanny, but how can she possibly imagine that Baddeley has said the wrong name? Yes, it's not. And that Baddeley has been with Sir Thomas for sort of 15, 20 years. Surely he knows what Sir Thomas means. Yes. No, but it's just this part of Mrs Norris getting out of hand when Sir Thomas was away. Another one of the awful things that have happened to that family because Sir Thomas was away. But I guess it's also part of just her conception that she cannot conceive that Fanny is anything more than the lowest and the least. Yes, well, probably a jealousy of Fanny now. Because, after all, the ball was held for Fanny. True. She thought they should have waited for Mrs Rushworth and Julia to come back. Yeah. Well, mine, unlike yours, is a very, very long one. (laughs) But it's one of those ones with three colons in it. It's Sir Thomas after he's talked about the fire and sits down to talk to Fanny. And the whole thing goes... Mr Crawford's business had been to declare himself the lover of Fanny, make decided proposals for her and entreat the sanction of the uncle who seemed to stand in the place of her parents. And he had done it all so well, so openly, so liberally, so properly that Sir Thomas, feeling moreover his own replies and his own remarks to have been very much to the purpose, was exceedingly happy to give the particulars of their conversation, and, little aware of what was passing in his niece's mind, conceived that by such details he must be gratifying her far more than himself. And I put that in partly because I think it's a lovely, incredible sentence, but also because it shows a bit of Jane Austen's attitude to him which we don't get very much, that she can see a comic side to him, Mm. that she can approve of things in him, but also find them funny. Yeah. Which is really adding to that sort of the Sir Thomas subplot of things going dreadfully wrong for Sir Thomas. Mm. The pride goes before a fall Mm. subplot of what happened to Sir Thomas. Mm. The character for today's discussion is Henry Crawford. And I really think, and I think we both think, is the most complex and the most interesting of all of the villains slash antagonists slash foil male characters in all of Jane Austen. Oh, yes, yes, by far. Well, I'd just like to sort of step back on something I said earlier when I was comparing Henry to this Rocky Napier character and Barbara Pym. And what I want to say is, I don't think Henry was like Rocky Napier, but I think Mary thought Henry Uh was like Rocky Napier, Uh which is partly why she didn't disapprove as much of him. So she sees him as unconsciously charming everyone. 
Or not even necessarily unconsciously. No, I think she thinks he puts himself out to charm. And I think Rocky Napier did. Yeah. But it being a sort of rite of passage for these girls, it's just a sort of a nice thing to happen in your first season when you're out. Yeah, because I do think he comes into Mansfield and I guess he's attracted by Mariah. Well, by both of them. He's attracted by both of them. He chooses to pursue Mariah because she's safer as the engaged woman there's no risk but and also more of a challenge yeah but I just think he treats her really badly oh yes absolutely in that first half of the book the way he talks to her he raises certain expectations that he has never had any intention of fulfilling no and so he just completely messes her up yes as Michael said when we were talking about him a couple of episodes ago he is a narcissist and he is also quite predatory when it comes to Mariah and then also when he initially decides he wants to make Fanny fall in love with him this this is not a nice person yeah and also you just wonder was this something he was making the center of his life here he is he's a highly intelligent young man what could he have been doing? Should he have been doing? He should have been turning himself into a decent landlord. Yeah. He's got an estate. I mean, you can blame the Admiral here that he didn't spend enough time when he was young to build up strong feelings for his estate. But of course, the other thing with him that you do get in the first half of the book is he does have a good relationship with Mary, but only up to a certain point. So he won't know, really put himself. He won't out. really put. It, he'll put himself out a bit for her. Yes, but he would never have stayed with her at Mansfield yeah. if there hadn't been some girls to flirt with. Yeah. But I think he'll put himself out more for Mary than say Tom will for Mariah and Julia. Oh yes, much more. Tom also bets and no doubt drinks. And again, as an heir, should be spending a bit more time at home. Yeah. Learning to manage the estate. Yeah. Whereas Henry only goes back to his estate for a couple of weeks for the shooting. Mm. He hasn't built up proper feeling for the people of where is he in Norfolk. Yeah. So up until quite recent chapters, he has come across as he's treating Mariah very badly and Julia. Yes. But... Everyone else in the company is enjoying him. As you pointed out, he has this great social ability so that when when Sir Thomas has come home and the Bertram children have gone, Henry then takes control of the situation and tells people what to do and tells them the right thing to do. And then there's that little piece at the beginning of the ball where everything is very stiff. And then he and Mary arrive yeah. and suddenly everything becomes much, yeah. much friendlier. Yeah. So he has a, a great social presence. Yes. But yeah, his determination to make Fanny fall in love with him is horrible. It's absolutely up there with what he's done to Mariah. Yeah. But then you have the scene where he tells Mary that he's fallen in love with Fanny. And I think <laughs> we're seeing in Henry now what we previously saw in Mary, which is they had this gap in their education but they recognise and respond to it in others, which does speak well to them. Well, they've been given all these awful principles and they don't live by them. Yeah. And they're attracted by the other principles. But I also think that while Mary just doesn't really get it, Henry kind of does get it. Well, after all, we've never got Mary talking about Edmund's principles. Yeah. What we've got is Henry goes straight to the heart of what it is that's made Fanny so important to him. 
like I said last time, until I'd been listening to the Daily Nightly podcast and until I read some of the comments on the Facebook page, I'd never really paid all that much attention to what he says in that scene. So this time I read it much more carefully and you do believe everything he says. You may not believe it will last forever, but what you can get a sense of is that he does mean to change himself. And this is what I thought was interesting because, as I said, the Daily Nightly podcast, they had not read Mansfield Park before, so they didn't know what was coming. So when they read this section, they suddenly became totally pro-Henry and wanting Henry to win Fanny, and they compared him to Darcy, and they said it's like Darcy changes himself after he falls in love with Elizabeth, so too is Henry changing himself. And I, when I listened to that, I thought about it, then I read the section, I could see why they had those thoughts. But I also then, in my head, worked through, so what is different between him and Darcy? And I think there are three specific things. The first is that when Fanny initially says no to him, he keeps pushing and he goes to Sir Thomas. Whereas when Elizabeth says no to Darcy, he steps right back. Now, okay, Henry doesn't even get that Fanny has said no. So maybe you can give him a bit of a pass on that, that he just hasn't fully understood. But he does keep pushing a bit harder when he can see she's uncomfortable, which isn't really nice. and, And again, he's not worried about what Fanny's thinking. Yeah. He sees it as a challenge to him. I mean, he says, oh, I'm going to make Fanny so happy. I'm going to make up for all the ways she's been treated. But at this moment, he's causing Fanny an awful lot of anguish. Yeah. But then the next thing he does that I think is very different from Darcy is that when Darcy goes to a lot of trouble to get Lydia married to Wickham and later says he only thought of Elizabeth, but he went out of his way to prevent her from knowing that he'd done this. Whereas the moment Henry does it, he says, I did it, here's the letters, look what we've proved. So again, he's done it for Fanny, but with the ulterior motive that it will, maybe he doesn't articulate to himself, it will put her under an obligation to me, but I'm sure what he does think to himself is, it will make her think well of me. Yes. I can stand up in front of her and say, I did this wonderful thing. And she will say, oh, thank you so much, Mr. Crawford. Yes. But then the third thing is that Darcy and Henry are both tested. Darcy's pride, Henry's vanity are both tested. When Elizabeth tells him about Lydia, it actually says she could feel her power slipping, that when he's learned this, his love for Elizabeth will not be strong enough to overcome his pride but it does. Henry, on the other hand, when it comes to Mrs. Rushworth, he succumbs to his vanity. And this is something that Bethany said on our Facebook page. The thing I find people have a lot of trouble with is understanding that Henry's flaw is vanity and not lust. He likes making women in love with him, but he was never going to ruin a Miss Bertram. But he is a much more complex person than Wickham or Willoughby. Mansfield Park is such a masterpiece because all the characters in it are so human, which I think just sums everything up beautifully about Henry. And it even says if he'd gone to Norfolk, as he was supposed to do, and as he knew he should, so unlike Mary, he's recognising what the moral imperatives are, what he should be doing, but he's so piqued by... No, I think he sort of needs his vanity to be stroked again. Yes. So he nips off to London, and then he'll go to Norfolk and do what he should do, but he doesn't want to go straight from Portsmouth to boring old Norfolk. 
and do all these serious yeah. things. What he wants is he'll just go back to London and people will tell him he's okay and yeah. he's lovely. And yeah. so that sort of thing because he's been starved of it for yeah. a little while. But then he meets Mrs Rushworth again. Then it comes back to this, this challenge thing. His vanity can't cope with the fact that she is now rejecting him and he's determined to make her look fondly on him again and that's where it all goes pear-shaped. Yes. Darcy overcame his pride, but Henry does not overcome his vanity. And of course, that's why I think in the end, I agree with Mary that if he'd married Fanny, he would... He'd be tempted he, away. Yeah, he would not resist temptation. He would not be faithful to her. He might, as Mary said, have been discreet. He was certainly trying to be discreet with oh, Mrs well, Rushworth. Well, you know, but, I think Mary probably had him right. Yeah. But of course, given but Fanny... Fanny yeah, Fanny How would could care. Fanny have ever lived... If she cared enough about Henry for her to feel it was she was justified in marrying him, how could she ever yeah. have been able to bear the thought of Henry off, even if he wasn't sleeping with them, yeah. flirting with other women? Yeah. I'm willing to trust Mary and say that he would have been discreet. Yes. But I don't think she had enough insight into Fanny to know how Fanny would have felt, even with discreet. Yes. So basically, I guess at the end of the day, I have a lot less sympathy for Henry than I do for Mary. Oh, yes. Henry made choices. He made choices in the first half that hurt other people, specifically Mariah and Julia. Yes. Mary did not make choices that hurt people in the same way. Henry took an initially predatory approach to Fanny. Yes, he was emotionally caught up, and I'm not, not in any way saying he wasn't hurt in the end as well. But so much of it was it was his choice and his decision. Did I over-talk anything you wanted to say and not give you a I chance? I just wanted to say about choosing which sort of lover he was yeah. going to be. Which character will I take on? Will I take on the lovelorn lover? Will I take on the troubadour? <laughs> which choice have I got yes. of how to behave? Now, maybe we should explore that a little bit more. Is he a bit of a chameleon in that he... One of the reasons he acts so well is that he can put on and method act, completely believe these different personas. If he thinks he can get up in a church and give a sermon, I mean, it's a semi-joke, but he's not being silly. Mm. He's almost saying, yeah, if I wanted to, I could give a good sermon and the people would turn up to listen to me. <laughs> and he's probably right. Well, he probably could. Or is it just about giving a performance? The play is about giving a performance. So is it that he likes giving a performance or is it that he likes adopting different personas at need? Well, well I think it might be that he almost does like taking on personas. Mm -hmm. Well, after all, all these sort of things he's prepared to do, you know, he's suddenly prepared to go and live at Thornton Lacey and rearrange the garden. Yeah. Well, of course, that's another enthusiasm he has for improvement of estate. yes. He's just sort of someone with not enough to do. Yeah. Someone who probably does have quite a lot of talents, but no incentive to, no necessity for him to use them to do something meaningful. So he yes. just flits from one thing to another as it takes his fancy. Well, that seems to be the case, doesn't it? He's not asked to have a profession, mm. and what he's been given by birth is to be a landowner. So yep. he could have gone and been a landowner and done all sorts of things like putting on plays yep. and being mm. the cultural life of the neighbourhood and inviting people in. 
but he'll never be able to be the sort of person he was meant to be, which would have been also being a magistrate yeah. when he was a few years older, perhaps being a member of parliament. Yeah. To be a member of parliament would be even more fun and giving speeches in the house. Well, he's only 24 or so. So maybe that is something that will just come to him a bit later. Although Mr Palmer is only that sort of age and he's already entering politics. Yes, but then he's already doing something with his estate. Yeah. He's committed himself to being the landowner and being the country gentleman. Which again, maybe only happened once he got married. But Henry is still in the pre-married man about town phase of his life. Yes, But he's so much more a complex character than Mr Wickham or Willoughby or Mr Elliot or Frank Churchill or any of the other non-hero male characters. So much more believable, so much more real, so much more complex and so much more a character that readers respond to differently. I don't think you'd find many readers actually supporting George Wickham. But from that moment when Henry says how he's in love with Fanny. Even if you believe that Fanny will still end up with Edmund, you do think, well, maybe she won't. And you do actually think, I don't know how this book is going to finish. Yes. And that's because Henry is such a complex and interesting character. Edmund, of course, missed most of the drama we've been discussing. He was away in Peterborough being ordained and I want to use this section to go over what Jane Austen meant by ordination and by being in orders. This is a reference to the three religious orders in the Anglican Church, the deacon, the priest and the bishop, which were entered through ordination. Ordination was a specific religious service where the bishop passed on to a suitably prepared candidate or group of candidates the obligations to preach the gospel and foster Christian communities that Christ had imposed on the Twelve Apostles. Since this was Edmund's first step in taking orders, it is likely that he was being ordained as a deacon. Although deacons were fully members of the clergy and were entitled to the prefix of the reverend, they were not yet permitted to perform certain functions. They were not allowed to consecrate the bread and wine for communion or to bless people or to absolve people's sins. It was usual for a deacon to be ordained priest in a similar service after about a year. Actually, the first time we hear about ordination in Jane Austen is in Sense and Sensibility, when Lucy Steele says, As soon as he, that is Edward, can light upon a bishop, he will be ordained. This makes it sound as if Lucy believed Edward just had to rock up to a bishop and the thing was quickly done. (laughs) But as Irene Collins points out, in her helpful book, Jane Austen and the Clergy, this was by no means as easy as Lucy makes it sound. She writes, In addition to a degree, a man thinking of ordination needed a testimonial from his college, vouching for his fitness. This, she says, was fairly easy to get. The colleges were always prepared to do it. Mm -hmm. But having acquired the necessary document, the candidate had then to find a bishop willing and able to devote time to ordain him 
which was often the most difficult part of the whole business. Edmund, of course, he would have known that he would have to wait until the Bishop of the Diocese had scheduled an ordination. He would also have known that the bishop might want to have someone, perhaps his chaplain, examine him on his fitness to be ordained. That is why he has arranged to stay for a week or more with his friend in Peterborough. He may also have wanted time away from the secular distractions of Mansfield to prepare himself. Although it still doesn't really come across that there's much spiritual component to it. Jane Austen just doesn't write about that. I was just coming to this from the perspective of someone who isn't religious. Yeah, there's not a lot of God in Jane Austen, given that we know how religious she was. I think we just have to put it down to the sort of what the high Anglicans ended up calling reserve, Mm. that you don't talk about these things. They matter deeply to you, Mm. but you don't talk about them, Mm. as against the Anglican evangelical tradition, which talked about that. Do we assume there was still a sense of spirituality in this process, or was it a really quite secular religious? Yes, like being taken on for a job. Well, that's what I'm going to try and talk about now, by comparing it with a similar ordination that really took place. Yep, okay. I found an account of the ordination of a young man from a similar traditional Anglican family who was ordained deacon in 1815. This was John Keeble born in 1792, and so 23 at the time, who was later one of the founders of the High Church Movement. His bishop arranged that he should be examined at least a week before the service. Mm -hmm. His biographer, that's Keeble's biographer, reports that on the surface he seemed to be taking the whole thing lightly. This is what he wrote to one friend. On Monday I'm to be examined by Levitt of Christ Church. If he plucks me, plucks was Oxford slang meaning fails. Yeah. I have made a vow to pluck all of his pupils for the next year. (laughs) Keeble, like Levitt, was engaged in teaching and examining students at Oxford. Mm. Nevertheless, Keeble, in fact, took his new commitment very seriously. His biographer quotes from a letter he wrote to a friend. Pray earnestly, my dear, my best friend, that he would give me his grace, that I may not be altogether unworthy of the sacred office on which I am, rashly I fear, even now entering, but that some souls hereafter may have cause to bless me. Pray that I may be freed from vanity, from discontent, from impure imaginations, that I may not grow weary nor wander in heart from God's service, that I may not be judging others uncharitably nor vainly dreaming how they will judge me at the very moment that I seem most religiously and most charitably employed. This sounds very similar to the sort of self-doubt and examination of her motives that we're told Fanny puts herself through. And it seems pretty likely that Jane Austen saw Edmund as engaging in similar self-examination. In particular, we can assume that he brooded on his coming duties as a priest. Mm. Jane Austen gives us Edmund's 
views of the duty of a clergyman on two occasions. Mm. At Southerton, when he's talking to Mary, and as they are expounded by Sir Thomas at the Grant's dinner party. And I think you'll feel that these, in a sense, support your view that God doesn't enter much into yeah. it. It's more like social work. And since I downloaded the text of the ordination service, I found it interesting to compare the prayer book view of the duties of a priest with those of Edmund and Sir Thomas. In this service, before the candidates are given authority to execute the office of a deacon in the Church of God, the bishop asks them a series of questions. The first two are about the deacon's vocation. Do you trust that you are inwardly moved by the Holy Ghost? And do you think that you are truly called according to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ to take on the office of deacon? I mean, there's no doubt that God's there in the middle of the ordination service. Yeah. They're asked those two questions to which the answers are, I trust so and I think so. But the third is about the deacon's beliefs. Do you unfeignedly believe all the canonical scriptures of the Old and New Testament? And when the candidate answers this, the bishop glides into a series of questions outlining the duties of a deacon. Will you diligently read the same unto the people assembled in the church where you shall be appointed to serve? So we're moving into your social work phase. Well, not really, it's still religious. He then goes on to the other tasks a deacon is expected to perform to read holy scriptures and homilies in the church and to instruct the youth in the catechism, in the absence of the priest to baptise infants and to preach if he be admitted thereto by the bishop. And he goes on, Furthermore, it is his office where provision is so made to search for the sick, poor and impotent people of the parish, to intimate their estates, names, and places where they dwell unto the curate, that by his exhortation they may be relieved with the arms of the parishioners or others. And then it finishes, Will you do this gladly and willingly? To which the answer is, I will so do by the help of God. Mm. I think we can assume it was duties such as these that Sir Thomas was thinking of when he told Henry Crawford, a parish has wants and claims which can be known only by a clergyman constantly resident and which no proxy can be capable of satisfying to the same extent. He knows, that's Edmund knows, that human nature needs more lessons than a weekly sermon can convey and that if he does not live among his parishioners and prove himself by constant attention their well-wisher and friend. He does very little either for their good or his own. Mm. On the other hand, there is very little in the service that actually endorses Edmund's view of the power and influence of the clergy. Edmund tells Mary, I cannot call that situation nothing which has the charge of all that is of the first importance to mankind, individually or collectively considered, temporally and eternally, which has the guardianship of religion and morals, and consequently of the manners which result from their influence. 
The closest the service comes to this, it seems to me, is the bishop's final question. Will you apply all your diligence to frame and fashion your own lives and the lives of your families according to the doctrine of Christ and to make both yourselves and them as much as in you lieth wholesome examples of the flock of Christ. Yeah, well, you'd have to say Edmund never comes close to saying anything as religious as that. Edmund's view of how the clergy's influence operated was, it would seem, specific to his own era and its ways of thinking. Irene Collins, in the book I mentioned earlier, suggests that his linking of morals which she calls the inner principle which distinguishes right from wrong in the relationship between individual human beings, with manners, the code of practice which governs the outward conduct of those relationships, was quite widely held. She quotes the politician Burke as saying, Manners are more important than laws. The law touches us but here and there and now and then. Manners are what vex and soothe us, corrupt or purify, exalt or debase, barbarise or refine us by a constant, steady, unborn, insensible operation like that of the air we breathe in. They give their whole form and colour to our lives. There were, however, people who accepted Burke's view of the importance of manners, but who, like the Crawfords, did not accept Edmund's view of the clergy's role in defining them. William Lamb, Lord Melbourne, four years younger than Jane Austen, is reputed to have said, Things have come to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to invade the sphere of private life. (laughs) With the pop culture versions, I think I'm mostly going to be looking at how the different versions treat the scenes between Sir Thomas and Fanny, though probably a little bit the um, Henry scenes as well. So starting as usual with the 1983 BBC production with Sylvester Latuzel and Nicholas Farrell. In this one, Sir Thomas walks into Fanny's attic and immediately notices the absence of a fire. The way the scene is done in this version is it fits with my vision because Sir Thomas is very dignified throughout. He is actually about to leave when Fanny says that she refused Henry. Uh, He isn't expecting to leave with Fanny to go down and see Henry Crawford. Basically, he tells her and he just has no expectation that anything odd has happened so he thinks I'm just coming to tell you and then then I'll leave and so he looks absolutely stunned when he learns that Fanny has refused and he does seem to be struggling with her refusal to explain why he has the long speech but he's not angry he is delivering it with dignity what I can't remember is whether he talks about her independence and how offensive and disgusting that is I think they may have cut those words but as I said he's not angry with her he's not shouting at her but you see tears starting to run down her cheeks and she breaks down when he talks about her ingratitude she ends up practically hysterical in tears and Sir Thomas is comforting her and then when she comes back from her walk she does find the fire in her room so again more or less as per the book but the main thing I wanted to emphasize is the fact that Sir Thomas isn't angry with Fanny in that scene in the attic he's 
taken aback, but he's dignified. He says some things to her that make her break down completely, which are obviously unkind and unfair, but it's not tyrannical. I've never read it as more than, you know, yeah. as bemused almost. Yes. With, that Sir Thomas is, you know, what has got into this girl. Yes. The 1999 version with Frances O'Connor and Johnny Lee Miller. Fanny is going upstairs and Henry follows her up and declares his love. This scene is not using dialogue from the book. She says, do not speak nonsense. He says, you're killing me. She says, no one ever died from love outside novels. It's all a bit over the top. Now, with this one, because William doesn't appear... He doesn't have that extra level of obligation over Fanny, but then this Fanny is much more independent and more visibly independent. She's more Jane Austen than this yes. Fanny, yes. yes. It then comes to Fanny in the attic, and she's obviously just moved on from this quite happily because she's writing a scene from the juvenilia and reading it aloud and laughing to herself about it. Yeah. But interspersed with that is some ominous music as you see Sir Thomas walking towards the attic. All oh, right. So once again, Sir Thomas comments on the absence of a fire. And the conversation he has with Fanny is a mixture of text from the book and new stuff. And Fanny in this one is much more open in her criticism of Henry. She actually says something like his sole interest in loving is being loved. But in this case, Sir Thomas actively becomes angry with Fanny. And he actually says, do you trust me? And she says, yes. And he says, well, I trust him and you will marry him. It is much more down the tyrannical path. Yes. Which is in keeping with how the Sir Thomas in this production is presented. So in this case, his speech to Fanny most certainly does include the bit about her independence being offensive and disgusting, which is in keeping with him becoming very angry with her. He also points out that she doesn't have Mary Crawford's income, so she doesn't have so much freedom to choose for herself. Which is a sensible thing to put in for a modern audience that possibly doesn't register the idea of the independent income for the woman. Even though at the start of the scene in the attic, there was the bit about Fanny not having a fire, there's no subsequent scene, unless it's a bit later in the movie that I haven't got to yet, where she does have a fire. Now, the 2007 version with Billy Piper and Blake Ritson. In this one, Sir Thomas has called Fanny into his room. Henry is there and he tells Fanny that William has been made lieutenant and shows the letters and explains his role in it. In this one, Sir Thomas is more angry than he was in the 1983 version, but I think less angry than he was in the 1999 version. But he definitely seems to be quite contemptuous of Fanny when he's saying he is very disappointed. And he talks about how self-regard is disagreeable beyond all else, which again is some of the stronger language from that speech that I think the 1983 version may have cut back on just a little bit. He points out that the luxury to pick and choose is beyond your means and he's practically shouting at her as he says she may wait another 18 years to find someone as good as Henry. And he slams the door as he leaves. Which doesn't sound like Sir Thomas. No. There was nothing about the fire in this one at all. It just didn't come up in the conversation. And after he's left Fanny's attic, it cuts straight to the scene of Henry reading Shakespeare. They've obviously decided that the speech from Henry VIII isn't interesting enough because instead he's reading the Such a Night as This speech from The Merchant of Venice. Yes. So none of them are quite the same in just the level of emotion from Sir Thomas in that scene with Fanny. Yes. I mean, going by the book, I don't read all that much emotion from Sir Thomas. No. I read it as 
this is his considered judgment. Yes. It's not his cross with Fanny. Yeah. He's just sort of putting the ticks on her report card. Yeah. You did that wrong. You did that right. So the last one, as usual, to talk about is the 2014 web series from Mansfield with Love. Now, this is a little bit different because, of course, Henry can't arrange for William's promotion. But William has told Frankie that he has to go back to Portsmouth because he's been given a place on a training course. And this will be really good because it means he's not traveling all over the world for a bit and it improves his career prospects. And they're both really excited about this. And then Henry tells Frankie that he spoke to his uncle and his uncle pulled some strings and he wants her to come to London with him. And he says, you need to get out of Mansfield. I can get you a job with my uncle's firm. We can be together. And she immediately does get that Henry is serious And she does say that she does need to get away from Mansfield, but she doesn't want to move from obligation to the Bertrams to obligation to him. And it wouldn't be fair on him. So then at that point, they actually shuffle the order of things around a bit. And the next web episode we have is where Ed and Frankie have their conversation about Henry's proposal. But after that, the older actor playing Mr. Bertram makes one of his infrequent appearances and turns up in Frankie's room to talk to her. The conversation doesn't map exactly to the book because he's also focused on Frankie leaving Mansfield and going to work at the other hotel they own, the Antigua. And it's a little bit confused in that partly he's saying, Henry has offered you a good job and why didn't you take it? And then saying, but I'm also going to offer you a job. But what I really wanted to say is the tone of this conversation in this instance is one of just, I don't understand this and I'm disappointed in you. Not, I'm angry with you. Not, I'm going to sack you from Mansfield so you have no choice but to take Henry Crawford's offer. Just, I don't understand and I'm disappointed. So all four of these adaptations position Sir Thomas slightly differently in the emotions he portrays when he's talking to Fanny or Frankie in the attic room. Yes. In the last episode, we talked a bit about Pug. And actually, we said a lot more than made the edited version of the podcast. But just after we released this episode, another podcast, one called The Thing About Austin, had a whole episode about pugs in which they spoke to Dr. Stephanie Howard-Smith, who's an academic specialising in the cultural history of dogs in the long 18th century. So obviously is way more knowledgeable than we are. We didn't know anything. (laughs) So she had quite a lot to say. But one thing I thought I'd mention is the fact that even though in the book Pug seems to just be called Pug, that wasn't all that unusual for the time. So in the Hogarth painting we talked about, um, the Pug in that was called Trump. But the Pug that Hogarth owned before that was actually called Pug with two Gs. And then there were others as well, Pug with one G, which Dr. Howard Smith says she knows about from looking at lost dog advertisements in the newspapers of the time. Also... In terms of pugs changing sex, she commented that at the time, people weren't actually all that fussy about the use of accurate pronouns for dogs. So that might just be something that Jane Austen simply didn't think about because no one else thought about it at the time. Although as a counter to that, specifically for Mansfield Park, we actually had two suggestions as to what could be happening. One from Michael and then the same one also from Bethany on our Facebook page that whenever Pug is starting to look a bit shaky, Sir Thomas just switches the dog out and puts a new one in and Lady Bertram just doesn't notice. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet. And me, Ellen. 
In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 35 to 39 of Mansfield Park. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.